from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Howard Minking, an 83-year-old Baha'i now living in West Virginia. When he first became a Baha'i just after World War II, he went to Brazil for a year. After returning from Brazil, he and his wife Joanne were the first Baha'is to live in Cape Verde, Africa. They stayed in Cape Verde until there was a Baha'i community established there. I started the interview by asking Howard where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in very much German Lutheran Indiana, suburb of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was brought up where <laughs> my early childhood, uh, you know, I didn't have a bicycle till I was able to buy one at about 14 or 15. And I walked to school crossing the Catholic schoolyard where I played ball with my buddies after school to another couple blocks to my Lutheran school only to have the pastor there of the church give us our Bible lessons every morning. And number one, he was, the discipline was learning these Bible passages all the time. And I'd remember memorizing these on the way to school. In my childhood, the German Lutherans had a discipline. The Germans are very precise and very disciplined and very cerebral, very <laughs> You know, oh. I believe that the mind and the heart have to function together. Oh, cerebral. A big thing in my mind was when I asked the preacher, Reverend Wheezy, when they say the understanding heart in the Bible, are they talking about this pump that pumps blood through my body? Oh, kid, how do you get those questions? And, and another one I asked him later on was, we pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, and I will be done. What do you think that'll be like? You think we'll happen? We'll see it in our lifetime? Oh, kid, where do you come up with these questions? Well, that was the last question I ever asked him because he never even never even made an attempt to give me his idea on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I graduated and was confirmed in the Lutheran Church, and I believed in God, but boy, I sure didn't believe all that stuff they were trying to tell me that they were right and all the Catholics were wrong, and I couldn't believe that. So when I became of age, 16, 15, I graduated from that parochial school at, what, 13? And when I was in high school, I only went to church to please my mother on Christmas and Thanksgiving or Easter, I guess. She was very religious. But I'm thinking for myself, as most teenagers do. Then the war broke out. And being an audacious kid as I was, I want to know everything about everything. I, w- I was a Civil Air Patrol cadet and piloted a plane at age 16. <laughs> wow. And I loved communications. I loved uh, anything 
mechanical, electrical. I made my first crystal set. Uh, must have been about 12. All this was preparing me for when the war broke out in 1941. My brother was already enlisted in the Marines, and I was a junior in high school. And the Navy made an appeal to all high schools to find cadets for their civil or for their naval air pro- program. And boy, I wanted to get in that. Now I was I was 17, 16, 17. They said anybody that can qualify, and I got to qualify you. The principal said. Oh, everybody wanted to go, and the principal called out about half of them, and he said, Menking, what are you doing here? Your grades aren't up that good. I'd get straight A's in physics and math and that sort of stuff that I like, but, you know, passing grades in history and literature that I... I was a slow reader, still am. So we got this free trip to Chicago, about maybe eight or ten of us. Only two or three of us were asked to come back, and I barely qualified and finally I, I I got I went back and I passed everything and the final thing was to meet before these admirals all right kid what what are you doing here your grades aren't up that high well I, I like aviation I'm already a pilot da, 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 and I got I got this uh, urge to be a naval air cadet and they questioned me a little more, and they said, let's let this kid in. Yeah, he's audacious. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I and the only other smartest guy in our class, the president, the valedictorian, he and I made it. And they sent us up before my 18th birthday up to Canton, New York, way upstate along the St. Lawrence River in New York, St. Lawrence University, right across the river from Ottawa. Well, it was co-educational. It was naval Naval Officer Training School, and boy, we we were we were in the Navy, but we had dormitories. Everything was so great. Gosh, but in the morning you got to get up and you had to run over to the athletic field and you do your calisthenics. I mean, it's a sharp dawn, and up there it gets below zero, and you can freeze your ears because it gets dry cold up there. Right. Anyway, I was having a great time. Boy, couldn't wait to get out of this. About halfway through the program, I finished one semester. We were starting on the other. We were only going to be there a year, and then we were going to go to Pensacola or some other naval school. The Navy, our Senate, the government said, we're spending a lot of money on this naval air program. We've got to cut that down. What cost us $10,000 to make a naval pilot? <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. What would it cost today? Right. Oh, several hundred thousand. Anyway. And I was washed out. I was in the 49th percentile. And son of a gun, I was sick. Boy, I, just a little study, I could have kept my grades up in that and in those other courses. But you know what? That might have been just divine providence because I would have never come back. I, I'd have been such a daredevil pilot. I already had figured out that I'd be, I'd be a hellcat. <laughs> mm. Anyway... They reprocessed me in Bainbridge, Maryland, and I took all these exams, and they said, oh, young man, you really are qualified for so many things. We got this new program called Radar. What's that? Mm. <laughs> and they said, well, it's a new electronic thing that we that is really a great thing for us to detect the enemy and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, I said, oh, that sounds good. It's all electronic radio and stuff, yeah. So I passed that test easy, and I was sent to Chicago, 
Hugh Manley High School for pre-radio material and home every weekend. God, mm. a couple months there, I think, in pre-radio, you took more math and physics and then pre-electrical stuff. You could put in your request where you want to go. I want to go to Pensacola, Florida. I want to be a, a naval cadet or, or Corpus Christi, Texas. I didn't end up to either one of them. <laughs> they sent me out to California, to Del Monte, California. It was a, oh, what a, what a suffering treat that was. Del Monte, California is where the movie stars had this beautiful hotel there. We had the hotel. The Navy took it over. Wow. We had dormitories. We had white tablecloths and, and, and a golf course right there. And that's where I learned what golf was all about. I followed Bing Crosby and Bob Hope around the golf course one day, just enough to hear them joking and everything. The last, I had three months there. The last month, I didn't quite get my grades up. And I was having too much fun on weekends again. They said, well, you're not, we're not going to wash out. You're just going to have to take this month over. Well, and then I got up. They sent me up to Treasure Island where a six months more that's where you got hands-on training and all the electronic gear. This radar set was as big as a big commercial refrigerator. It must have weighed a ton. And we had more circuitry, more math and physics and reading the electronics and all that. But our books were locked up every night, so I didn't have any homework to do. Mm. I was, now I was getting hands-on training. Let me tell you about this radar checking. You'd open the front door the big panel with big bolts on it. And you'd use a big rod, wooden handle, with a, with a metal lead connecting to the ground on the chassis. And you'd stick it in there and short out all those tubes and a big arch would fly. The power tube itself was as big as a pineapple. And, and you'd hit that and man, it'd make a big crack because if you went into it with your bare hands, you could get electrocuted. Mm. Anyway, I finally passed all of that, and I got my degree, and oh, I was so happy, and now I'm going to go to the, uh, apply all of this, because we would be a electronic technicians mates in the Navy, and I got to end up first class in that, and I had these orders. I was going to be sent out on a, orders to an attachment with the Marines. The Marines needed electronic technicians to go in with them, and keep all the electronic gear, just radio and no radar, but radio and transmitters. And I thought, well, that's all right. I love that deal. My brother's in the Marines. I like it. My ship will be gone in a few weeks, and I borrowed a guy's ID to go out and see my girlfriend in San Francisco. Mm. And son of a gun, would you believe that's the day they check all the IDs when I came back in Sunday night. And I am sick, because now I got a captain's mask. That's like a little small marshal, you know. And I said, no, my ship's going this week. Forget that. You're not going on that ship. You're scratched. You're scrubbed. I thought, my God, I missed it again. Mm. But you know, if I'd have been out with the Marines, I might not be here today to tell that story. Things happen. Mm. Now, I'm reassigned. I'm reassigned to the Vulcan, AR-5. It's way over in the Philippines. And on private orders, under secret <laughs> orders only by the captain of the ship, I get a big, nice ride over to Hawaii, and I get to stay there until I catch another ship and catch 
another big ship ride to Ulysses, a little... You could walk around the island in about a couple hours, but it was a place where we transferred people. Then I got another ship over to the Philippines and finally got on my ship with my orders. It's huge, and it's just full of all kind of electronics and, and so many engineers and technicians. And, and what we did it was a repair ship. They were docked in there in the biggest gulf in the, in the world, but it's one of the biggest, Lazy Gulf, right there. And I talked to people in the Philippines. They know about it. And there were hundreds of ships there, American ships, in, in our, we'd go. I, I had to take sailors to shore on a boat to give them liberty and a little recreation and play ball and get drunk on beer. And I had, I was a shore patrol. I had to bring them back half crocked. Mm-hmm. And I had to use this stick on them if they got unruly. And I wasn't a big guy. I was only about six foot, 153 pounds. Now the war is ending. I mean, the Japanese are crazy. They see they're losing. And now the suicide pilots are coming in and, fi- and just like, you know, kamikaze pilots, you've probably heard about them. Yep. And they would go right at the mast of the ship, right at the center of the ship. And some of the small ones would go down, I guess. But some of the smaller ones, like the destroyer escorts and, and destroyers, they would limp back to Lady Gulf to one of these two repair ships here. Ours was the best in the world, had the best chow, the best accommodations. It was like a Hilton Hotel and... These ships would tie up around, alongside of us and walk across each other's ship to come to our... We had two movies at night, and boy, the best chow in the Navy. Mm. And they loved it, and we loved it, too. Well, my job was to repair these ships, the electronic part, the radar, the mast. And I'd take these work orders, and I'd take two a day sometimes with only a few hours sleep in between, maybe. And this work order would be to repair and install all the radar and the, the, the mast and the cables. Some of them were really big jobs, but I'd have a crew of electricians and ship fitters and all kinds of help. But I had to go climb the top of the mast to install the thing myself with this big safety belt on. And that ship would sway back and forth. I never got sick, but boy, everybody thought that was one of the toughest jobs I we were motivated because the war was ending, and I'd take one crew, and I'd get the job done, and, and boy, we could get those ships out of there in a week or two. But now, December 10th, was it? We dropped the bombs. My God, we heard about it, and we, were, and we dropped the second one. And we hear, when the first one dropped, we didn't hear except a great big bomb that devastated Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. They sent our ship over up to Okinawa, Iwo Jima. We didn't stop at Iwo Jima, but uh, Okinawa, and we ran into a typhoon. You see, they have these typhoons over there, and they are the most horrific things. Japan on down. These these things destroy small ships. I don't know how many hundreds of ships we lost in typhoons if they couldn't get out of the way of it. On this big ship, only a few of us didn't get seasick, but we would tie these guys in their bunks because they would get so sick they wanted to jump overboard. And that would keep them from safe anyway. Mm. But my job was up in the radar navigation room to plot this thing. And I had four on and four off. But we went through this thing, and I'm telling you, way up there 
in the navigation room. I would sit there, and this ship would rock and pitch. And you'd see the waves on one side looking out. You're way up now. Then you see the waves on the other side. I mean, this ship was bouncing around like a cork in a storm. We'd have to tie ourselves on or hang on. And I'm trying to see this radar and get through this thing. God, there was something else. We made it through, and we got up to Okinawa. Stopped there only a day or two. and never did get off. And went with an escort up to Kuri Naval Base. That's in kind of central Japan, south of Tokyo, I guess 100 miles or two, or I don't know. But it was the biggest naval base, and we pulled in there. Hiroshima is just a, a jeep ride away. And I was one of the first Americans to take a jeep in with some officers where the Hiroshima bomb was dropped. And as we're following these streetcar tracks into the city, we come up on this big open space as big as 20 miles across, absolutely devoid of any rubbish. You'd see the foundation of a building, a house or something, and no trash around it. It, you see it and you can't believe your eyes. You can, I can tell about it, but you can't believe it when you see it. We're going back through, I thought, the West Coast. They changed our minds and we went back through the ditch, through the Panama Canal. Now, I've, I've got liberty, the war's over, and we're just sitting there. And I get a Jeep all by myself and drive up. It's now wintertime there. Kind of chilly in the bank, but it's real cold up in the mountains. And I guess I drive 25, 30 miles up there. And I saw a man in the hills there with a nice-looking house. And I just talked to him as I do. I talk to everybody. Would you come in? Would you like to come into my house? Well, perfect English. Oh, well, could I please? Yeah, I'd love it. Cold as heck. He says, and leave your shoes here. And we walked through the grass, the thatch floors, and got the big square cut out in the center of the room. Was a big hibachi in there with coals, and we sit down there, and we got this comforter over us too. I said, "Oh, so nice and warm." And he said, "Would you like some tea?" I said, "Oh boy, would I ever!" But now I get acquainted with this guy. He's about five years older than me, educated in Europe, wasn't an officer in the Japanese Navy. I don't know what his history was. He didn't tell me. But let me tell you, I finally met a true Christian man, the finest Christian man I ever met. He, he showed such hospitality and love and concern, but you know what? He wasn't even a Christian. He was a Buddhist. Well, did that turn this young 18-year-old going on 19-year-old young man around 180 degrees? I believed in God, but I had an idea that religion was Religion never brought anybody together. All it did was tear them up and cause disunity. And yet I knew the word religio meant, in Greek and Latin, religio would mean unite and li liga and unite and bind together. And when I became a Baha'i years later, the founder of the Baha'i faith says, religion is simple. Man's made it so complicated and difficult. As long as it's bringing people together and they're loving one another, that's religion. Follow it. If it isn't bringing people together, you'd be better have nothing to do with it. Well, I thought, well, I got A's in that. Because <laughs> that's exactly the way I felt.
that man turned me around and had me thinking that, well, religion isn't all that bad. Okay, I'm, I'm discharged now. I finally get home three years, a month, and six days, and I get discharged in Great Lakes Naval, Air, Naval Base in Chicago. Just, you know, a couple hours from home. They wanted to give me a, a warrant officer's rating, rank. I refused it. I said, no, I've served for three years, a month, and six days, and that's exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> but had I taken that officer's rating, I would have been sitting with a couple thousand dollar income now since age 40. I would have, all my time would have counted double and everything. So for 40 years, I could have had that <laughs> nice Retirement, naval retirement. Mm. Anyway, I, I don't regret it because what happened after that would never have happened had I shipped over, I don't think. Now, I'm reprocessed back in Fort Wayne. I'm seeing some of my old buddies from high school, and we're going in this Walgreens drugstore, and there's this lady, young lady, who says, Oh, hi, Howard. And this was a girlfriend that my brother's girlfriend that he was engaged to in the Marines while he was in the Marines fixed me up on a blind date when I came home my last trip home from California as I was shipping over and we were kind of sweet on each other but she she never answered any of my letters and I could never figure that out but the reason I, I, I finally figured out she had a boyfriend from high school that got killed over in Europe and I think she didn't want that disappointment again so I, she wanted to see me again, and we had a few dates. And I'm best man at two or three, four weddings of my buddies. They're all getting married, and I'm telling them, no, I'm not going to get married. After some months, I became more and more attached to her. And now everybody's saying, well, when are you two going to get married? Well, finally, I did, and we got married. I got my old job back with Magnavox. I had... All the qualifications, I had 90% of an engineering degree that I was going to finish. And Magnavox treated me as an engineer and let me come in and go as I wanted. Along came this job for Royal Typewriter Company. And I heard about Royal Typewriter Company looking for a salesman. And they put an ad in or somebody told me about it. Way back then, Royal had the market. Everybody fought for a Royal Typewriter in typing class or wherever you were in an office. Underwood and Remington didn't even come close. So I said, boy, I love to sell Royal Typewriter. So I went and applied, and they said, well, we don't hire you here. We hire you from New York. Oh, I got to go to New York. No, no, no. You take these tests, and they'll grade them and hire. All the hiring's done from New York. It took me like three hours to go through this battery of psychological profiling and all these tests, and well, a couple of weeks later, maybe it was quite a while before they called me and they said, Well, how'd I do? Well, young man, you scored one of the highest scores we've ever had on this test. Well, I had Magnavox International Harvester, Ray Magnet Wire, and, oh, God, several big accounts there. This manager came down from Chicago and he says, Well, why don't you just start one of these bank buildings and work your way down from the top? That way you'll go up with a typewriter and you don't have to carry it up. And then you work down, and you show them a typewriter, and if they buy, we'll have someone deliver it for you, and then you go back and you demonstrate how it works and all this. I said, oh, great. 
Well, right off, I was selling typewriters like nobody in the country. I'd get these national awards. I hate to brag about myself, but I was a good salesman. If I'm sold on something, I, I can't keep my mouth shut about it, as you'll hear about the Baha'i Faith. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have this machine-a-day club. That's 30 machines a month. And I made that every month for months. And I was making so much money, I couldn't spend it all. And now I'm. this manager says, well, you're still in that bank building. Golly, there's other places. Why don't you go down the wholesale end of town there? Old brick buildings, big ceilings, warehouses, red brick, over 100 years old. So I did that. And there's this big red building, Fort Wayne Waste Paper and Rag Company. Well, the door was about eight feet high. And I walked in, and there's a big room about 25 by 25. And the only thing in there is a banister enclosing this gray-haired lady with a, behind a big old roll-top desk, you know, those wooden roll-top desks, mm. and an old rickety royal typewriter on a, on a stand that wobbles, and one wooden filing cabinet. Nothing else in the room. Well, I stepped in, I saw that, and I said, oh, boy, here's, here's a relic that we have to trade in. But I had to wait until this lady took care of these three black men who brought in their waist slips, and she would pay them. And I'm observing her taking care of these guys with such loving consideration. I mean, there's something about this that touched my heart. I didn't realize this. Then there was another white-collar guy, and he was ahead of me. I don't even remember what he was. But she treated him with the same consideration. Then she says, now, young man, what can I do for you? Well, I whip out my card and say, I'm with Royal Typewriter Company, and I'd like to uh, bring you one of our latest models. That thing's really belongs in our museum, and I'll let you use it for a while, and if the boss sees it's worth it, I think he'll seize it. We'll give you trade-in value on that thing. It's good archive. Well... That was the end of that. I was no more interested in selling that typewriter at that moment. But there was something in me. Now, this is what's very personal. That made me ask her to turn my life around mm. 180 degrees. Mm. I said, ma'am, how can you run this office with such, I don't know the words I use, equanimity or with such loving consideration? No, with such efficiency. I don't know what the dumb question was, but it was awkward. And here's how she answered me with a great big smile. Well, young man, I've always tried to live a life according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. I thought, oh, my God, a religious nut. I'm sorry I even asked the question. But wait, she's different. I'll listen to her for a minute. I've always thought that religion should be the source of uniting people, not dividing them. Well, hey, lady, that's exactly what I think. I always felt Christ had something special for me to do in my life. She was gray-haired, old enough to be my grandmother, maybe. Mm. Husband, 25. She said, oh, she never married. I later found out she was teaching Sunday school in three different churches without them knowing each other because she felt that unity was the purpose of religion. Well, this woman's got my attention now, and I'm saying, well, boy, golly, I... She says, so I was looking for any anything that was pertaining to unity, bringing people together. I was going to all churches, she said, and I looked into all religions. Oh, well, this lady's got my attention. She thinks like I do. 
She says, then some months ago or a year before, I don't know, a lady came through from Chicago area. She put this little ad in the paper announcing that she was going to give this lecture on the unity of all religions. She says, well, I had to see that at the Van Orman Hotel there on a Sunday. She said, I, I heard this lady speak, and she, she spoke just like I always felt, that all religions come from the same God. They all believe they speak with the same authority. Anyway, she went on to say that there's no difference between these religions, only the application in the time of the coming of the manifestation of God. Well, this woman has really got my attention now. And she said, this lady said she was going to stay the week, and for anybody that would like to hear this course I'm going to give on the fulfillment of all the prophecies of Daniel, the book of Revelation, I'm really beside myself. And this woman is such, she is the first real Christian I ever met. The other one was a Buddhist, but this was the first real Christian lady. And she turned out to be not She's still a good Christian. All Baha'is are. But she was the first Baha'i I ever met. She said this lady came from Wilmette, Illinois, and she believed that we're living at that time that Christ promised when the kingdom of God will be established on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I asked the Reverend Weezy about 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Right. Excuse me, but if this were true, every eye will see and every ear will hear she just smiled as big as the sunshine, and she says, Oh, young man, they will. They will. But in God's time, not like we're expecting it. The Christians had pretty well figured it out way back in the 18th century. 19th century. 19th century. Right. Around 1844, many Christians who really studied all the prophecies in the Bible expected Christ to return. There's these uh, Seventh-day Adventists, I guess, or whatever. Well, at first it was the Millerites. Huh? At first it was the Millerites. And they had the day pretty well figured out. 1844 is when the sign of God appeared on earth as he promised. Not the same Jesus but identical, the same Christ spirit, as he said when he talked to his disciples and they took him prisoner, incarcerated him. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, but now when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he will guide you into all truth. The same voice of God as spoken through Moses, as spoken through Jesus, and now... This will blow your mind if you're a Christian and you think Muhammad was an imposter. Muhammad, a mouthpiece of God. Now, this woman has got my attention. I, I don't know what to do. Certainly, typewriters wasn't the number one thing on my mind now. And if this is true, why haven't we heard about it? Everybody asks the same question, even today. And yet, it's on the Internet. It's on... And to just today, Warren, this... I'm a Zinijad that came and spoke at Columbia University, and the talk that was introduced by the introduction says, and when are you going to 
stop persecuting the Baha'is. He said it today. Mm. So that went out to millions and millions of listeners all around the world. Yeah, it was the president of Columbia University doing the introductory talk before the uh, president of Iran came to give a speech at yeah. Columbia University. And uh, yeah, the president of Columbia University provided that introduction and mentioned that. Yeah, I heard that. This lady gave me a little pamphlet, just a little vest pocket, 30-some pages, called Prophecies Fulfilled by Elizabeth Cheney. It's a, it's a keepsake of mine now. She's passed on many years ago. But I took that little book at home. My brother-in-law was staying with me and getting a law degree and going to Indiana University there, and a good Christian young man, very good Christian. He and I went through that checking with our Bible to see if any of the verses wording was changed. And when we concluded, I said, well, Bob, we got to look into this. He says, why? Why? If this is true, this is a promise that Christians been praying for 2,000 years. The kingdom of God is being established on earth right now, albeit in the very beginning. Well, now, now it's 50 years later. And it is worldwide. We're millions of us around the world. It's no longer a little sect. Everybody knows it's an independent religion. I can say that the Baha'i faith is still only one. And this is the prophecy in the Bible that says this will be the day that will not be followed by night. Probably many people remember that. Meaning that this day, the Baha'i faith will not be divided and chopped in, up into a bunch of sects. Like Islam was chopped up in the Sunni and Shiite 24 hours after Muhammad wasn't even cold in the grave. And look at how they're fighting, killing each other today. Religion is, is a dirty word today for anybody that's observing what's going on. But, as I tell people, this is pure religion. It is pure religion, and I, I used to hesitate telling people it's religion. I said it's a new world faith restoring our faith but now i say it is pure religion all religions are pure in the beginning and man gets in there and as i say screws him up messes it up divides it up gets his own ideas and you can't tell what the prophet even thought years later so i ask christians if christ came back today what church would he return to of the Five thousand six. Now I don't know. Would it be your church? Probably wouldn't be any of them because nobody's practicing what he taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means every neighbor. Anyway, okay. Now I'm studying this, and she gave me more books, and they bought the typewriter, and now I'm just enamored. I I really believe that shortly, days after I heard of, I, I memorized this prayer that she gave me. Uh, oh, I thought it was so beautiful. It was this beautiful prayer. I said, oh, this is, this is free and it's worth a $5 an hour shrink. <laughs> it goes, oh, God, refresh and gladden my spirit. Purify my heart. Illumine my powers. I lay all my affairs in thy hand. Thou art my guide and my refuge. I will no longer be sorrowful and grieved. I will be a happy and joyful being. I will no longer be full of anxiety, nor will I let trouble harass me. 
I will not dwell on the unpleasant things of life. Oh God, thou art more a friend to me than I am to myself. I dedicate myself unto thee, O Lord. I'm sorry I get choked up on that because it reminds me of that lady in the first I heard about it. That was the beginning of my life. But when she introduced me to the the reality of life, my spiritual side, she says, this is heaven. Heaven is when you recognize your true reality, that you're a spiritual being and not just a physical being. And anybody that hasn't recognized that is in hell. That doesn't mean that all Christians that haven't recognized Baha'u'llah yet, the founders of Baha'i faith, are going to hell. They believe in God. And they, they will all believe in Christ when, when and if somebody ever introduces it to them properly and lets them know there is no difference between Christ's message and Baha'u'llah's message and all the other manifestations of God. Baha'u'llah says they sit on the same throne, utter the same speech, and anyone listening is hearing the voice of God. Anyone seeing their face is seeing the face of God. For those who have the eyes and the ears. I bet I tell a couple dozen people about this every week. There's only one God. All religions derive their inspiration from this same original source, one creator. We can never know him because it's impossible to know the creator. We're part of the creation. So we can only know about him through his creation. And he creates a truly living spiritual being once in every age, a Christ a Buddha, a Muhammad, an Abraham, a Moses, and now a Baha'u'llah. And we don't realize, we're, we're saying about, we're talking about Christ, but not the same Jesus, the same Christ spirit. So I looked into it. She gave me books, and I read them, and I read them, and man, I was believing this was true. But I had so many questions and so many doubts, and I wanted it proven to me, and... We were invited to this meeting where this man was coming back from Brazil to speak at his sister-in-law's house in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He came back from Brazil, and now he he's coming back to recruit his sister-in-law and her family, her husband, to come down to help here in Brazil. Well, he gave this big appeal, and after he was over, he came over and sat beside me. Yeah, but what about you? We volunteered to go to Brazil. No, no, wait a minute, Howard. Where, where, where does your wife fit into all this? She says, of course I'm a Baha'i. It's the only religion that makes sense. What was your wife's reaction to you telling her about the Baha'i faith? Well, that's a good question. This lady would come to our house every Wednesday night. We went through this old book, chapter by chapter. And a friend of hers said, Howard's coming over to your house with that lady? And she said... Yeah. Well, I'd like to hear her, too. My, my wife said, you would, your friend that worked with her out at International Harvester in the building department. She said, yeah. She was the kind of person let anybody knock on her door, come in and talk to her about religion. She said, well, could we come over? Well, Joanne, my wife, said, well, I'm sure it'd be all right. Yeah, I'd like to have you come and listen to her. She called an hour before she was coming. Well, the four of us, she and her husband, we studied that. We were supposed to read the next chapter, and sometimes I just 
glanced at it, but we'd go through it religiously, uh, religiously. And this lady was such a saint and such a great teacher. And I'd come up with all these questions, and she'd say, Howard, that's a good question, but let's put that one on the shelf now, and we'll get back to it, because I, I assure you that all your questions will be satisfied. When he said, so your wife, I said, I really don't know how she feels, because she and I have been going through this together, but this Ed Meeser said, so is your wife here? I said, yeah, that brunette's sitting on the other couch in the other room. He jumps up, goes over, plunks down beside her, and says, I just talked to your husband. You want to see these, our photo album from where we live in Brazil? So he's showing her this album, and he says, yeah, this is where we live. This is the building where we live. We live, up, we live up in the ninth floor, and here's a picture of us on the roof, the garden roof. And here's a picture overlooking the city. Oh, she's just ooing and on. Here's the city of Pacambu. And look at these orchids just growing, hanging from the trees. It's up about, oh, five, six hundred feet or more from the port city, which is really hot and humid. And this climate is perfect all year round up there. Anyway, he says, oh, that is so beautiful. Oh, yes. Would you like to live there? Oh, I sure would. He says, well, your husband's ready to come. She looks over, what is he talking about? And he says, well, now what about it? You going to Brazil? I said, well, I'm ready, Joanne. Are you? Are you kidding? You just took that job back with Royal Typewriter. I quit and I went to work with a friend of mine who who started the claims radio and appliance store. And then I went back to Royal Typewriter and he gave me my old job, job back just a couple of weeks before. And I went in the next day and I said, you know, the contract I signed, I want it back. I'm going to Brazil. I told him the story and he says, you are something else. Well, the Baha'i faith is important to me now, and it's more important than this job with Royal Tiger. I was one of the leaders in the country. I was making, oh, two, three thousand dollars a month, and that was an enormous amount of money. So now we're on cloud nine, and I mean it's electric. We go to Chicago to get our passports, and we flew down by airplane, and at the airport I get this little demitasi of black coffees, thick. Oh my gosh! We gotta, we gotta water that down with hot water. But boy, the best coffee in the world. And then after a week or two, boy, I was drinking like a Brazilian. Cup of sugar in there. Uh, that is even better than Starbucks coffee today. <laughs> so Howard, we know that there is no clergy in the Baha'i faith. So you had to support yourself in Brazil. Well, Bob Ed Meester, a good salesman, as you can see, he he closed my deal. <laughs> He says, well, you're a salesman. You, you can, I sell these courses, Alexander Hamilton Institute. It's a business course of 12, 12 volumes, I think. And I sell this, and you can make a living down there. But I say, well, I can get a job with Royal Typer. I'm sure they got an office down there. So that's when I flew with him down to New Orleans to meet the guy that was the vice president for all of Latin America. And I get signed up with them. So I get down there, and oh, we took an apartment on the eighth floor, and it had three bedrooms in it. Now, how long how long were you in Brazil? How I long? I only stayed a year, and that's another thing. We're young kids, you know. We got a youth program down there, and this one, Lottie and Eugenia, with their names, the 
just a little bit older than me, but Lottie was the, the daughter of some German exiles that flew Nazi Germany and ended up in Brazil. And she saw her parents beaten by the SS, but somehow they didn't, they didn't kill them. And so she's blonde, and I'm blonde, and she has a love-hate relationship with me that, that I only found out after her mother, who was a Baha'i, and she and her father weren't. But they'd come to the Baha'i meetings, just lovely people, but she was going in for some very serious surgery. And it was so serious that she may not pull through. The odds are, I don't know, 50-50. So we're all praying for her. And would you believe God took her? She died, and I and, and Edmund Meisler and a few other close friends were there in the hospital. We went down right away before she went into surgery, and when she died, we were down there as she passed. And here's Lottie, the daughter, who's a dear friend of mine. She'd come up and hug me, and I'd hug her and give her condolences. And then she'd shove me away, just shove me away. And I couldn't understand this. She had the glimpses of these Nazis, blonde Nazis like me, beating her parents. Mm. And it was a deja vu, a real trauma for her. And then the father, who was very serious and very German and liked all the Baha'i faith, but the heart never opened up to him until. So we're going to the funeral, the Jewish funeral. We throw the dirt in the grave and everything. And we go for some, somebody's house and for dinner or something. God, this tears my heart open. Lottie says, I know my mother's face was true. I know that this, this is true. I'm going to become a Baha'i. And even Papa Moses, that's what their names were, Moses. Papa and Mama Moses said he was going to become a Baha'i too. So That what... brings up another story like that. There was the president, or the chairman of the Baha'i Assembly of Sao Paulo. His name was Hans Obling, a German name, from a very industrial family. His father was a famous industrialist in Germany. He fled Europe, I think, before World War II. He jumped on a sailing ship as a teenager, a sail ship, and made the cruises, ended up in Brazil, and fell in love with there, and anyway, married, and, and they had two lovely children, two boys. I couldn't make a living there. I couldn't get a job with Royal Typewriter, and I couldn't sell those Alexander Hamilton Institute courses. And I came back with enough, enough money to start over. And now i got to go back, and I, I'm going to go back with very little money. We get back in America, and they were volunteering. I thought if I could live to see the Baha'i was representative of the whole world, because back then they used the adjective world, Baha'i world faith. After we were all around the world, they dropped the world adjective. Now it's just a Baha'i face. And we, go, we give a name to the Asian teaching committee. Why did you give it to the Asian committee? Because I had this electronic training, and I could get a job with the Navy or the Army or the government in electronics out in the Pacific somewhere, and I could go to some of these islands or something. That's what I was thinking. And so after we put our name in, and I'm traveling around the country trying to get my... I got practically an engineering degree and all this experience, and, and I could pass any test and get this job with the government. But we get this letter, and I, it's the last week, and I bring it up to Joanne, 
and it's a letter from the African Teaching Committee. Dear Howard and Joanne, since you've been to Brazil and you learned a little of the language, and I did, I learned it on my own. I had to teach myself Portuguese. I, I would take the lesson and, and record it into one of those reel-to-reel recorders and then play it back to me in my sleep and play it over several times under a pillow recorder, pillow speaker. Well, I learned that language, and I had no languages in college. I had an engineering background. But I learned that language in, inside of a few months. And I go to the public library in Fort Wayne to find the Cape Verde Islands, and all I could find was a little paragraph in an old encyclopedia. These little islands off the west coast of Africa, their only importance in the world was Columbus stopped there on his way to America. And then they become the, the central distribution point for the slaves, and then they would categorize them and load them on the ships to America. I saw all that. There are still traces of it. That's what they were famous for. And that's where I learned a little bit about the Cape Verde Islands, owned by the Portuguese, nine islands, beautiful. And when we arrived there by ship, the ship would anchor out to sea, and a, a, a little sailing ship or oars ship boat would come and get us. And she joined me there at great sacrifice. But we went ashore there, and she saw these little kids running around with no diapers on and barefooted, dirty mouths. And they were that poor that the kids were eating anything from the street. And she saw this, and she says, Oh, Howard, I can't stand this. So when we got to Praia, I gorged myself on papaya and ananas, that's pineapple, and the fruits are just so beautiful. And the second day there, we're in this little pension, not a hotel even, and I came down with Ectricia. That's yellow jaundice. And I mean, I got so sick, I couldn't even take a spoonful of water for days. And Joanne is sitting there with me every day thinking I'm going to die there and what's she going to do, how's she going to get home, she can't. And a good friend of mine that came to visit me every day, he was the best Catholic man I ever met. She would listen to BBC to keep connected with the world. She says it's like living on the moon here. And the surface of the island in Praia had no grass, no greenery. It just looked like the moon. We had this old two, three hundred year old house with holes in the floor where if you had a high heels, your floors, your heels would go through the floor. How, how did you support yourself? I had a little money. I put it all in the bank and I didn't need much to live on. And so I had this money and you could live on about $150 a month back then. And we got this nice apartment. Oh, after I got yellow jaundice. And a doctor would come to, day, come to see me every day, and he'd say, well, you know, this is serious, and I don't have anything for it. But my friend Vital Moeda, who would come to see me every day, he just liked me. He spoke hardly any English. He was a photographer in the Army, and he had this little shop and sold cameras and stuff. But he'd come in and see me every day, and I couldn't even take a spoonful of water. And my eyes are as yellow as oranges, she said. And one day he brought a native remedy, some rhubarb, and he gave me a spoonful of that, a little more of that rhubarb, and I think uh, within a day I'd been the doctor so happy I'm taking some food. Vital muerte, the word means vitality and money, and that's exactly what this guy was. So I'm going around, I'm meeting everybody, and I'm learning the language, and they think I speak pretty good Portuguese. I'm making my way around. There's a native Creole, but everybody has to learn Portuguese in school, so I'm doing all right. And then 
I'm giving everybody literature, and they're coming to my house, and we're having firesides, and, and we would have great times together. Then this one friend of mine, his name was Frutuoso, meaning the fruitful one. He was an employee of the Postal Service. And he, he would be my friend, and we'd walk around and meet for coffee out in the kiosk together, and I became good friends. He was so in love with America. He knew all about the life of Lincoln and the American Constitution and just a buff. He wanted to be an attorney. He wanted to be American. Of course, I told him about the pie face and everything. Now, he's being transferred to Angola. He said, Howard, you ought to buy a little car. And he talked me into that, and I found a car that I had just enough money to win. I bought this car, and I'd pick him up from the post office. He'd drive me all around the, the lower byros where the people lived in grass shacks with grass thatch roofs, good, made of stone, but dirt floors, most of them, until they got enough money to get a bag of cement and make a cement floor. So we would go around. We stopped at this one little government housing place. Little, These had cement floors and tile roofs. Frutos says, oh, pull up here. Here's a friend of mine. Avelino Barros was his name. He's leaning out of his window after work, and he says, oh, yeah, I know you. I said, yeah, you, you bound all my Baha'i World books. And he bound them beautifully, and the Portuguese government confiscated all those boys. And I heard somebody say that in Portugal they got all that stuff from Howard Menking in a, in a location there. If it's there, I'm going to still try to get it. So I'm telling him the story. It's on July 9th, 1955, I think, yeah. And it started with Evelino Barros. He says, well, I, you've been here all these three years, and I haven't learned about this. I'd like to know more. I said, that's what I came here for. When, when would you like me to come back? Well, when can you? Tomorrow? And I came back tomorrow and the next day and the next day, every day, Saturday and Sunday, teaching him and then a few friends. We had a few women Baha'is, a couple of prostitutes that became Baha'is, really. And one little old lady didn't even weigh 100 pounds that wasn't even five foot high, but she baked the most delicious pastries and cookies early in the morning. And then she'd load up, load up this box, two foot by three foot, with a screen top on it to keep the flies out, and load it up with all these coconut cookies and macaroons and so many different things and papaya. And, and she'd come down in those bare feet from the Ashada, Santon Tone, that's a... That's up. The next chata is a plateau. And she would walk down and then walk up to the city and sell these cookies and stuff. And the most beautiful soul, she was our first female Baha'i. And when I explained it to her, she says, Oh, yes, I believe that. Yo, yo, credito, yo, credito. Well, Howard, we've run out of time. Well, Warren, something, we'll be in touch. God bless you, man. Thank you, Howard. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Howard Minking, an 83-year-old Baha'i who has lived in both Brazil and in the Cape Verde Islands. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
If I am a desert rose, I watch the sun rise up above me. And if I am a mountain rose, the morning sun comes from below me. Under one sky, we get our light from the same sun wherever we are. We get our life from the same sun wherever it rises. And if I am a northern rose, I watch the sun walk across the southern sky. And if I am a southern rose, the northern sun lights up my world tonight. Under one sky, we get our light from the same sun wherever we are. Under one sky, we get our light from the same sun wherever it rises. For change, take me from northern forests to the southern fields, and I will turn my face to the sun in any place where it rises. If I am a lover, I will recognize a rose in any land. If I love the roses, I'll accept an offered rose from any hand. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.